We listen now to the resurrection story as it is given to us through the Gospel of John. Listen now for the word of God. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciples set out and went toward the tomb, and the two were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. When we gather on Easter Sunday, we encounter a sanctuary that is full, flowers that are blooming, family and friends that may have accompanied us or us them to this central celebration of the Christian faith. Almost without exception, on Easter Sunday, the preaching and music focus on narratives either of the empty tomb or of appearances by Christ after his death and burial. Appearances in which Jesus is in a risen state that renders him unrecognizable to even those who have been the closest to him during his three years of ministry a state that the Apostle Paul will later label spiritual body. Both types of these narratives, 
empty tomb and appearances form the way that the Christian church has received its faith and conveyed its faith generation after generation. For those of us who are fact-based, empirically, empirically oriented, scientifically shaped, narratives of empty tomb provide a certain coherence. They simply chronicle what people who went to the tomb saw with their own eyes. A stone rolled away from the entrance, burial clothes lying in a pile where the body presumably was, young men or angelic messengers proclaiming that Christ is raised. The fact that these empty tomb narratives vary from gospel to gospel may reinforce the tendency of many of us who are fact-based to assume that these are stories written by people who want to believe that Christ overcame death more than they are reports of what actually happened. No matter how much our heart may be lifted or our aesthetic senses quickened by today's celebration of Easter, we who live by just the facts, ma'am, just the facts, will likely return home with the same skepticism we brought in our wallets or purses. What has been is what will be, we say to ourselves. What has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. We will carry on tomorrow as we carried on yesterday. Because carrying on is what we do best. By contrast... The appearance narratives cannot help but have a different impact on us. Even though these narratives also vary gospel to gospel, there is a personal, spiritual, existential dimension to them. In each gospel, each person who encounters the risen Christ responds dramatically. They are changed. They are transformed. They are even enriched. In Matthew, women who encounter the risen Christ react with fear and joy and then an instinct to worship all in one sentence. In John, Thomas reacts with hard-nosed skepticism. Unless I see the, nail mark, the nail, mark of the nail in his hands, I will not believe. But one week later, that skepticism becomes ringing affirmation, my Lord and my God. And when Peter, who had denied even knowing Christ when Christ was inside on trial, encounters the risen Christ by the Sea of Tiberias, he first dives into the sea in avoidance, and then he joins the others in awkward silence on the shore. When Christ reaches out and embraces him and commissions him once again to feed my sheep, Peter is restored to a position of leadership among the apostles. People who encounter the risen Christ are changed, transformed, enriched. Centuries later, 
as we hear these narratives read or preached or sung, the personal nature of these appearances of the risen Christ can affect each of us differently. To those of us who are already inclined to belief, they offer a deeper and more hopeful faith exactly why we came to worship on Easter. To those of us who are not inclined to belief, they can reinforce our thinking that as beautiful as these stories are, they are really no more than magical thinking. And to those of us who are teetering between belief and unbelief, between faith and doubt, these narratives can open, up to the, open us up to the possibility, the possibility that hope does indeed prevail, that life does indeed triumph over death, that there is something new under the sun. Whatever level of belief or unbelief you bring into this sanctuary this morning, we welcome you and we are glad you are here. I invite you to follow along in this sermon as we are going to trace the appearance of the risen Christ to one person, Mary Magdalene. And as we relate her experience to poetry from the past, and to people in the present, both of whom, both of whom together express the beauty of what is best in the Christian faith. Let us pray. Emerson said, There is poetic truth concealed in the common places of prayer and sermons that though foolishly spoken, may be wisely heard. Spirit of God, may the words of this sermon, however foolishly spoken, be wisely heard, that the poetic truth within the character of God, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, might be revealed. Amen. As the first person in the Gospel of John to arrive at the empty tomb and to encounter the risen Christ, Mary Magdalene has made only one previous appearance in the Gospel. She was one of the people near the cross watching the crucifixion. She appears only once in Luke's Gospel as one whom Jesus casts out seven demons. We know little else about Mary Magdalene from the Bible. On the first day of the week, while it is still dark, Mary goes to the tomb in which Jesus has been buried by Joseph of Arimathea. She goes to the tomb alone. Alone. She sees that the stone has been rolled away, a stone that has not been mentioned in John's description of the burial. Mary neither looks in nor enters the tomb. But when she sees the stone rolled away, she goes immediately running on foot to Peter and the unnamed disciple who is said to be the disciple that Jesus loved. For the first of three times in this narrative, she says, They have taken away the body of my Lord and I do not know where they have laid it. 
Peter and the beloved disciple run to the tomb. The beloved disciple arrives first, looks in, sees the grave grave clothes, but does not himself go in. Peter arrives, enters the tomb, sees the same sight, but also sees the linen cloth that would have been on the head of Christ lying apart from the other grave clothes. Then the beloved disciple enters and sees and believes. Both disciples then return home. Whether or not the experience leads Peter to believe is not specified. John then turns his attention to Mary, who is outside the tomb in the garden, having followed the disciples there. She remains outside the tomb weeping. But as she weeps, she bends over to look inside. She sees in the tomb two angels in white sitting where the body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. They ask, woman, why are you weeping? And once again she says, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. It is apparent that Mary's primary response to the empty tomb is grief. Mary is grieving. 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 And her grief is focused on the possibility that the body of Christ has been stolen and thus desecrated, leaving her with the most intense loss of her lifetime and without even a physical trace of a body to memorialize. The only words Mary is able to speak to give voice to is the absence of the body. A lament that she will repeat one more time. They have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid Him. Grief. Grief. I believe I've shared with you before that about 10 months into my ministry, when I was 25 years old and serving as an associate pastor, the town in which, I was, in which I lived was struck by a terrible flood. And it was less than two years after the same town had been struck by an equally devastating tornado. Between the tornado and the flood, one-fifth of the homes and businesses in the town were destroyed And in the tornado, over 40 people had been killed. After the rain subsided, the senior pastor and the other associate pastor and I went house to house via a borrowed canoe to every member of the church that we thought lived in the part of town which had been flooded. In one home, a young mother came from the house a young, a young mother who was a member of the church, came from the house holding her toddler daughter in one arm and a white plastic doll shoe in her free hand. 
The home from which they emerged lay in utter ruin. Wet clothing on the garage floor, personal belongings strewn all out on the lawn, drywall cut three feet up from the ground and stripped away in hopes that air might dry out the insulation and preserve some of the house. In the midst of this wreckage, the mother moved frantically from house to yard, from yard to house, from pile of debris to pile of debris. I can't find the doll, she said. I can't find the doll. Have you seen the doll? In a few minutes, a neighbor reached over and gently took the white plastic shoe from her hand and said, we're probably never going to find the doll that goes with this shoe. The woman sat down on a tree stump in the blazing sunlight that always follows a flood and wept. Do you know where they have laid the body? I can't find the doll. Grief. 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 As soon as Mary vocalizes her lament, she turns around and she sees a figure standing near her in the garden. We, the reader, are told that that figure is the risen Christ, but Mary does not recognize him, spiritual body. The figure calls out to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing the figure to be the gardener, Mary repeats her mantra of grief, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will go and get him and take him away. The figure then calls her name, Mary. And she responds, Rabunai, which is a personal term of endearment in Hebrew for a rabbi. It is thus when the risen Christ calls her by name like the good shepherd calling his sheep that Mary recognizes the figure as the risen Christ and is able to respond to him. Mary hears a call in the hour of her deepest grief and when she responds, the life she has turns toward an entirely new task of serving God as she becomes the one who then goes and tells the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Last weekend, as many of you know, I traveled to Charleston, South Carolina on a congressional pilgrimage sponsored by the Faith and Politics Institute in Washington, D.C. I was one of over 200 people on the pilgrimage. 
The trip centered around the history of the civil rights movement in South Carolina, and it specifically focused on the reaction of family members, survivors, and the larger community of the Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, who on June 17, 2015, whose pastor and eight of whose members were shot and killed during a regular Wednesday night Bible study at the church, killed by a young man they had invited in, but who, after sitting with them in their study for nearly an hour, acted on his theories of racial hatred in which he was infused and which led him to the church with the intention to kill. One of the survivors named Felicia Sanders shielded her granddaughter under a table and she watched as her 26-year-old son, Tawanza, both confronted the shooter and then threw his body in front of his 87-year-old aunt. Two days after the shooting, as the shooter stood for arraignment in handcuffs surrounded by deputies, family members spoke via video to him a news scene that I'm sure many of you saw. One member, the daughter of Ethel Lance, the 70-year-old sexton at the church, said into the video, I forgive you. You took something very precious from me. I will never get to talk to her again. I will never get to hold her again but I forgive you. Felicia Sanders also spoke into the video that day. We welcomed you Wednesday night into our Bible study with open arms. You have killed some of the most beautifulest people I know. Every fiber in my body hurts. And I will never be the same. Tawanza Sanders was my son, but Tawanza Sanders was my hero. Tawanza was my hero. As we say in our Bible study, we enjoyed you. We enjoyed you. May God have mercy on you. Nine months later, at the pilgrimage last weekend, Felicia Sanders spoke to over 200 people in a church a block away from Mother Emanuel, explaining what had now led her to speak. I'm not a carpenter, she said, but I'm a carpenter's daughter. I wonder why God did this. I'm not an educated woman. But there was something going on in that room that night. There was something going on in that room. I was left for dead. I was left for dead. 
I didn't like the platform I was on. But God can do extraordinary things with ordinary people when they determine their platform, when they put one foot in front of the other, one step at a time. Mary, Felicia, Each Sunday during Lent, our choir has been presenting one of Ralph Vaughan Williams' five mystical songs based on the 17th century poetry of George Herbert. Last week, you heard for the first time the song called The Call. Come my way, my truth, my life, such a way as gives us breath. Such a truth as ends all strife. Such a life as killeth death. Come my light, my feast, my strength. Such a light as shows a feast. Such a feast as men's in length. Such a strength that makes his guest. Come my joy, my love, my heart. Such a joy as none can move, such a love as none can part, such a heart as joys in love. Mary, Mary, Felicia, such a way as gives us breath, such a truth as ends all strife. Such a life as killeth death. God can do extraordinary things with ordinary people when they determine their platform, when they put one foot in front of the other one step at a time. The call. This week in the New Yorker, the poet Ray Armentreau wrote in a poem called Fusion, to recognize is not only to give something a name, but to give it the very name it was waiting for. Whatever has brought you here to this place today, I hope that in this narrative of Mary, in this narrative of Felicia Sanders, you have truly recognized an appearance of the risen Christ. And that in such recognition, you've been given the very name that has been waiting for you. The call that is uniquely yours. The platform on which God has placed you to walk one foot in front of the other, 
one step at a time. Amen.